Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. In 1899, my guest, Ali Robottom's great-great-great-uncle bought the patent to Jell-O from its inventor for $450. The sale would turn out to be one of the most profitable business deals in American history, and the generations that followed enjoyed immense privilege, but they were also haunted by suicides, cancer, alcoholism, and mysterious ailments. In her first book, Jell-O Girls, Ali Robottom offers a gripping examination of the dark side of an iconic American product and a moving portrait of the women who lived in the shadow of its fractured fortune. Jello Girls is a family history, a feminist history, and a story of motherhood, love, and loss. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Allie Robottom. Allie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure. Your book, Jello Girls, A Family History, is a, a, an amazing read, and it's a memoir, but I... It, it it kind of seems to defy easy genre classification because you say it's a family history and it, so it's a, not, a memoir not just of yourself but sort of a a sort of memoir from afar of your mother and grandmother and extended family and and it's a history of Jello and yet also sort of a, a I feel like a history of domestic science twentieth century feminism industrials it's it's an interesting kind of gender or genre bender. Uh, with gender, with all sorts of interesting gender analysis. I mean, did, was this, did you think, hey, I, I want to do all this stuff? Or was this just kind of what came out as you're writing? I'm getting that question so much and I love it. Um, yeah, I did think that. But I started this book never having written a book before. And so like figuring out how to do that was the biggest challenge. And I think along the way, I sort of resigned myself at certain times to, um, letting things go, like letting certain threads go that I had initially really wanted in there. Uh, but over time, thankfully, I developed a structure that I think helped me include everything that I wanted to include. There's very little in the book that I had wanted to get in, especially of like big thematic stuff that I didn't get in. So I feel pretty proud of that element of the book. <laughs> no. It's interesting. Your family bought Jello. Is this your uncle that bought Jello? That bought the company for like, uh, like a couple hundred bucks, right? <laughs> yeah, my great, for- great, great uncle. Okay. And he was actually—I say this in the book just to make sure it's clear—but he was my uncle by marriage. My great, great aunt married his son, who actually went on to make the Jello company what it it became and sell and to sell it to craft. So I say in the book, it was by luck and by marriage that my family came into Jello money, which I think happens a lot, um, in part because sort of the patriarchs died off and left Edith, in this case, my great great aunt with a vast fortune. <laughs> um, but yeah, because yeah, this is so, this is sold like the 40s for like $64 million. Or yeah, 67 right? million in the 60s. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 67 million in the 1920s. 
the company then moved away from Leroy in the 1960s. Which was a tough thing for Leroy in New York, right? Because this this company, which is sort of emblematic of its identity, kind of leaves. Yeah. And, you know, it's a story of many small towns in America, but Leroy had really, as you say, depended on the factory work that Jell-O provided and, and the sort of job security and also the identity. And uh, when the factory left, it really took with it a lot of the, the entire region's uh, prosperity. So I think that was really hard for the town. I don't think it ever recovered. Is it, is it Elliot that said, you know, all men li- live lives of quiet desperation? It, it, I mean, it, it seems the men and women in your family memoir here were living lives of quiet desperation. You talk about your grandma, Midge, that what got her through was cocktail hour, right? <laughs> that, that, that you... You know, you kind of do your things. You're on your social committees. She's sort of this wealthy class in this small New York town. And if I can just make it to happy hour in the cocktail party. And, and you, you talk about in the book how she would just fall asleep before dinner in her husband's lap. I mean, it, it, he's drinking bourbon. She's drinking. And they're just, it, it's just like, I, I, you think of the recovery thing, like one day at a time. It's like they're doing cocktail parties one day at a time, right? <laughs> That was definitely how uh, my mother described her childhood. I think, I mean, I think there was a lot of um, timekeeping sort of through happy hour, for instance, and through drinking and and alcoholism um, in some people's cases. I think, I think like on one hand, the adults had a lot of fun, um, which I hope I got a little bit of in the book in as so far as there was a community. And I think for my grandparents, that was really helpful on some level. They had um, they had lived abroad when my mother was born, and I think that had been really isolating for my grandmother. So having the opportunity to move home as sort of quiet of a life that it became for her, and she was a woman who had initially wanted adventure and travel and all that stuff. I think being close to her cousins and her aunt and her mom was really important for her. Um, but as I say, you know, in Leroy and at that time and in families of privilege like mine, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot to do. It was like cocktail hour and boards and committees and that kind of stuff. Um, and my grandmother, she had wanted to be a writer. So I think that was, must have been really hard for her. Yeah. You, you have this sentence early in the book, which I mean, th- these are sentences that you're, you're like, oh, gosh, I, I wish I could write like this. It's simple. We come from Jello, <laughs> and you say, you say it's our birthright, and you, you you talk about this whole transaction from four hundred fifty dollars one day to decades later, sixty seven million dollars sold for, and, and yeah, it seems like it, on one level, right? You, we come from Jello. You could read it as just the source of this family's largesse. In other sense, I'm thinking like this dead animal parts and sugar, and, and you know, and this sort of. Uh, unseemly thing you would it's like you don't want to see laws or sausages made this thing becomes this sweet somewhat artificial kind of thing right and then i'm thinking also is this some kind of evolutionary primal thing like everything's red in tooth and claw like we're all coming from jealousy like we're all we're all coming from some kind of carnage right it's like th- that sense is just so evocative i mean this seems like there's so many layers <laughs> to, to to that to that statement yeah i mean i think that jello just as an object is endlessly layered and and so like as a writer it just provided so much um meat for lack of a better word for me to to dig into um but yeah I mean I think that it's all of that it it's that um we as we can literally be sort of like boiled down to our essences as as individuals and as people and at the same time we live in a culture and a community oftentimes that would have us um 
disguise in, in a lot of ways our grisly origins and like our grisly endings uh, with lightness and goodness and sweetness and, and all of the things that Jello really made its mark with. There's this uh, so, uh, economist, Joseph um, Schumpeter, who he was, he wrote a, a pretty cited book that was written like in the forties called capitalism, socialism and democracy. It's funny because he said that he wanted to be the world's greatest economist, the world's greatest lover and the world's greatest horseman. And he said, the economist thing is not going so well, but, <laughs> but, but yeah. he, said that he kind of, he kind of like turned Marx on his head and, you know, Marx thinks that capitalism would kind of overrun by the, by, you know, the workers revolution, the, you know, the oppressed class. And then there'll be this kind of meek shall inherit the earth. He said, no, capitalism, he was Austrian and he, I mean, I don't know that he wants capitalism to really fade away, but he says that it will be undone by the children of the ruling class. Because you, you, you look at industrialists, they don't have industrialist kids. Their kids become lawyers or social workers or artists or you know, people that are well-educated and oftentimes have like some mild disdain for, for the thing that... that, that provide opportunity because they see the under the, they see the underside of it right like as as i'm reading your book i'm thinking well i mean this could be like a case for 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 uh schumpeter's thesis because you do have you're realistic about it and you're not you don't have a grudge an axe to grind but you but you do see the kind of underside of 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 the socioeconomics of of the jello thing and what it did to just family life yeah i mean it was sort of impossible not to it um but I should say, like, I think that that, how do I say this? You know, this idea of like the jello curse, like people are always asking me if I'm afraid for my life and stuff like that. And because yeah, this is something that's passed down from the women in your family. We're cursed. Like this is, this is bad things happen to our family. Like we've got a cloud over it. Yeah. But I think that, um, how do I say this? Like, I think that sometimes people with a lot of privilege have a tendency, not always, but sometimes to believe that like, because they have privilege, bad things won't befall them. So it's like, I, I don't feel that way. Um, I don't think that it's a curse. I think it's just, it's life, but specifically life, as I say in the book within a patriarchy. Um, yeah. So, but I, I agree. I think that coming from privilege and oftentimes seeing that it doesn't solve everything can often disillusion um, people, I guess, and, and create artists. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, yeah. I mean, certainly that's been true for future generations. It's not like I'm the only Jello offspring. There's many of them out there. And uh, there are plenty of people who have chosen art over commerce. Yeah, and this curse in your memoir it evolves, right? Like it, it, it's the women, then then it's the men, but then later in the book, is it mention your mother says the curse is silence. Yeah, that's that, my that, mom. Yeah, your mom says that that it's that it's it's this thing that that the Jello represents it, right? The, the the domestic woman that is it's just Lacan, right? That uh, the psychoanalysis said we have this whole kind of lack and excess, and we're sort of born with a sense of lack, which society says well. If you sort of play by the rules, keep your head down, you know, be a good, that sense of lack will be made up for, right? If you, and this, this is kind of what's going on with, with women in your family, but also women in general in this sort of domestic science sort of ideology, right? That, that, the, the pressure to just, to just sort of be something less than human, <laughs> right? To just meet an expectation instead of be who you are. Yeah. Well, I think that that is, 
I mean, how we all come up in a, in a capitalism really is being told that we're lacking in order to consume more, in order to feed the beast. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that that was true in sort of the domestic science movement. I think it's true now, too. I mean, you look at any billboard advertising anything at all, and it's designed in some way to make you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the domestic science movement was such an interesting example because it um it sort of helped women in in so many ways and like that is it would be easy to write about it and to demonize it entirely but in actuality domestic science was trying to be practical about giving women power within the spheres and the confines that the domestic science movement and its creators believed that women would always be limited to it's it's interesting you you're you have a mother and a grandmother that are that are frustrated artists right that that like i mean and it it's evolves like your grandmother's a, a, a wannabe artist kind of your mother actually was an artist and off kind of subsizing that with the with the jello money she kind of resented now you you actually have published a book that's gotten great reviews and it's a fantastic read i mean is there this sense of fulfillment of a of a long struggle is there i mean is emotionally what's it like to fit to have the book like hey here this is what two generations or, or at least of my family have been trying to actualize here um yeah i think so yeah there's a sense of fulfillment i think th- that's a multi-layered question for me because i feel like um i grew up seeing that my mom was an artist, obviously, and that's very present in the book, and it was in her life too. And seeing that she would, she was a self-sabotaging artist, and seeing that she was constantly struggling to prove her worth and to make her own money and be an independent woman and not quite allowing herself to, I guess. So I knew at an early age that I didn't want that to be my story. Um, so this book and selling the book and you know, completing my PhD and, and all that stuff felt very pointed at, at taking a different path than her. So there's that layer, but then it's also that she had wanted to tell this story and the story of her mother before her. And it had felt very, it had felt imperative to her and she hadn't been able to do it. And so like the idea that I was able to give her that on some level, whether or not she knows about it feels really good. Um, and I guess it does feel on that level, like breaking breaking a pattern if not a curse is, is there a pressure that goes along with it too i mean are you writing things don't screw it up <laughs> like i i wasn't thinking do, do the do the goalpost move like okay i i got the phd okay now i've got the book okay now i've got like i mean are there are there other sort of is there sort of one one sort of uh part of the of the curse overcome or something and then and, you know now another one pops up well i think my own private curse is like perfectionism and, uh, <laughs> so I'm really helping with this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm very uh, honest about it. I know this about myself for sure, but I'm, um, you know, we talk about that, that hole that needs to be filled and that, you know, you reach outside yourself to fill it. I think that I and a lot of people with similar personality types, I guess, um, tend to do that through like achievement and accomplishment. So, uh, <laughs> it, I might not be like uh, an, compulsive shopper or you know whatever but like i i um i definitely like reach to prove myself through that stuff because i have that that sense of not being enough just as i am um so i i'm not sure if that answered your question <laughs> it, it's really interesting you have this great 
sentence you write about your grandma midge you say she was in mourning for the life she dreamed of and i wonder how many great novels are, are you know are born of that of that existential condition where you're you're mourning a life that never was it's not something you lost it's something you never had but but the never hadness becomes reified and becomes a real loss right like for which it seemed like that was an animated midge and to some degree maybe your mom's life less than midges but that's stories there too right yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, I think it's uh, that's such a tragic place to be in. And I think for Midge, I mean, it was interesting writing Midge because obviously, like, I never met her. And I was working off of my mother's understanding of her, which ended when my mother was 14 and her mother, and Midge died. Um, and then using like, letters and that kind of stuff as, as secondary documents. But so it was challenge. I mean, I was trying to interpret as best I could what her life conditions would have made me feel and what my mom said it, it seemed like she felt. Um, which goes to say, you know, I think that she was probably happy on some levels. I don't want to make it seem like she was a, a total tragic figure, but I think that um, she had wanted to to do more than what having children and a family actually enabled her to do. And she it wasn't that she necessarily hadn't wanted her children. I'm sure she did. It's just that like conditions for women were at the time and to some extent still are. It's really hard to do it all and to have it all. And, um, you know, that means that something has to give. And if you're an artist, I think that it's so tragic to, to think about losing your art. I think for my mom, that that sense of mourning and loss was there as well. But I think she she was like constantly trying to do her best, like to to figure out how to to heal. I think that that sense of loss sort of came on early for her, like it was linked to her mom, but then also like linked to the Jello money and her fear of being without, and her fear that she wouldn't be able to make it on her own if she was. Um, but she was such a searcher. I mean, like she. For her whole life, as long as I knew her, she was searching for some way to to um, to have the life that she wanted. I just don't know if she ever did. I hope she did. I don't know if she did, though. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the challenge of third wave feminism, right? Because it, it, often you hear this sense in which now it, whatever you choose to do, whether you choose a career outside the home or you choose you want to participate, you know, throw your engine to child ring, it's OK. And yet. It seems like women feel still, I mean, there's still a pressure on women to, to do it all, right? Like it's too, it's, it's, it's not okay, really, which you have to choose all of the above or, or you're not really fulfilled. Yeah. Or you're not, or you're like a wuss or like an object of judgment, I think, particularly for other women. Like, I, I don't, it's like you have to be working your butt off all the time in order to be good enough in this world, especially as a woman. And if you're not, then like you're lazy or something. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have kids yet. I I would like to, but I think one of the reasons that I've hustled as much as I have career wise is to make it because I felt like I had to in order to have kids. Like I knew that or I've heard that on some level my my writing will suffer. And so like I need to write as much as I can and publish as much as I can prior to having kids for that practical reason, which feels like I shouldn't have to do that. And maybe that's not as much of a reality for men. I don't know. But like yeah, nobody, I, it seems to be true from what I've heard. Like, makes an existential dilemma for men. It's almost assumed guys are just gonna work, right? And if it, yeah. and if you do throw the football with your kid or you go to father daughter or something, yeah. you're a hero. You kind of you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're a great dad. Yeah. You you write about (laughs) one of your moms, sort of adolescent, later adolescent experiences, where she has this figure in her life, cousin John, who's a little older than her. And she finds him very you know irresistible you know he's got this charm and they have this flirtatious relationship and one evening she after an interaction with him she says that uh she recognized something about her body something strong about it when molded to fit a man's desire and so there's this strength externalized in sort of the perceived desirability from a guy and, and then she has her first sexual experience with john which is awful it's it, it just terrible and it, it's interesting that you write yeah. quite vulnerably about your own se- early sexual experience i think it was your first in college and it was eerily similar to your mom yeah i mean it wasn't my first experience um but it was an experience i decided to write about because i like like during the process of writing Jello Girls, when I was going through my mom's memoir, and I read about her experience with Cousin John, and specifically the physical symptoms that she was left with afterwards, which was that in particular, her hand froze into this like weird claw. I was stunned because I had had a similar experience, and I had never known about that experience that she had had. So it was happening, I mean, seemingly completely disconnected. Um, so I thought, oh... I'm going to write about that experience that I had where my hand froze. Um, Cause I don't know, it's just, it's crazy that it's so connected. Um, I think that probably a lot of women relate to that idea of feeling strong uh, in as much as one's body asserts power or, or gets a reaction from men. And I think that um, it's, it's an idea that's obviously solidified by the culture in which we live. Um, and it's one that's like destined to upset and, and fail the people who find their power from it because <laughs> the body ages and changes and, and we have a very narrow idea in our, our culture in particular of what's sexually attractive. So if you're deriving worth and power from your ability to be sexually attractive to people who aren't going to find you sexually attractive in a very short span of time, it's like setting yourself up for failure, which I think my mom definitely experienced uh, at different points in her life and and watching that was really sad and I think I understand it so much more now (laughs) um, than I ever did then. Cousin John died when your mom was pretty young so this is a guy you'd never met I mean are there I was just thinking like you 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 there's a sense in which you almost novelize these characters. I mean, you 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 make them incredibly human. I wonder what your relationship is like to these family members you've never met that that come alive to some degree from notes and a memoir from your mother. And yet, and I mean, are you thinking, are you like John? What a dick! I mean, are you? I mean, I like, I, it, like I'm wondering emotionally what your relationship to these family members is that you only know through recollection, and yet you've made come alive. Um. Yeah, I mean, it was a challenging experience to to have to write them sort of novelistically. I mean, I think, how do I say this? I, when I was reading my mom's memoir, and I've read it many times and, and over and over again, um, I think I always tried to be, and this was maybe more so when I was a younger reader, because I read it, I started reading it when I was in high school, I think. Um, and then I would return to it over the years, but I tried to sort of reserve judgment as much as possible because I I was so aware that this was a memoir from my mom's point of view. And memoir is subjective, as we all know. Um, 
and it, it's not as like it's not absolute fact it's it's memoir um so I really tried to bear that in mind but it's I think you know with someone like cousin John the behavior is such and honestly seemed worse in my mother's memoir than I chose to make it in my book for just practical reasons and like time and space and narrative um that it was kind of hard not to be You're like I don't have the time to tell you what a dick he was <laughs> exactly I mean I think that's actually true of a lot of things in the book like if there's anything that I could have put more in it was the extent to which my mom suffered uh abuses you know from men in her life um and I don't think that that is necessarily that uncommon especially at the period of time that I was working with like the you know the 60s um and 70s and yeah a little bit into the 80s but like she um she just suffered way more than I had time to put into the book honestly so it was like really hard for me to not be like yeah this is like a thing like this is like the systematic or systematic um a, like abuse of women for lack of a better word is like totally a thing it was a thing in my mom's life and she she actually approached it as much more normal than I would in my life and certainly um in this book so uh, that sort of answered your question, I suppose. Yeah. So this is this is the lighter version of the story. <laughs> yeah, it is, and for like very practical reasons. I mean, I think it would have been really hard, almost like legally, for my mom to write the book that she did. And this one, you know, was also vetted uh, legally for very practical reasons. So I mean, I that's part of writing a memoir, I suppose. But like, you know, it's still dangerous to to talk about abuse in a lot of in a lot of spheres. You talk about meeting your husband in the book. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like when you're dating your husband, even just on other first dates and relationships, when you get to the point where you're talking about like family stories, are you like, I got this? I mean, really, I'm going to be an interesting date on this <laughs> part of the journey because I've got a story to tell. I mean, it, this is right in my wheelhouse. I I don't think that I did. I didn't really. I mean, um, one thing that I, I think about this book, I mean, I know that it's a unique story. I, I don't feel a, a, like too much ownership over it almost. And maybe that's just a symptom of the book being like out in the world now, but I'm very aware that there are other people who come, who come from Jello, you know, and that this idea of Jello girls is, um, in my mind, it's, it's a very universal, it's a universal label, if you will. It's like I say in the book at some point, like, we are all connected. We are like, basically we are all jello girls. Um, in as much as we've all been shaped and influenced by cultural forces. Um, all of which goes to say, I don't think that I, I led with jello or even like mentioned it probably too quickly into our relationship. Maybe I did. I don't know, but it's funny because I mean, my husband and I think a lot of families or whatever have strange stories like this. Like, for example, my mother-in-law's last name is Pillsbury, like the, Doughboy, um, <laughs> because she's like connected on some like very, very far removed and like there's no money, but it's still like that connection exists. It's like the actual Pillsbury family. So, I mean, it's, I don't know. I think it actually happens more often than that or often. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? 
Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You talk about when your mom becomes pregnant with you, and she tells her then boy, boyfriend George, who becomes her husband, that she's pregnant, and, and he's she's worried about time. He's actually very excited. And you say that... Oh, only it's after like he felt elated that only then did she feel elated only then did she allow herself to hope for the wholeness and health the child that might heal uh, the, the child that might heal the child so damaged within her that strikes me as a huge burden right <laughs> for i mean children are always kind of a burden in in late modern life right because it's not like agrarian pre-modern society more kids more help every kid's an economic liability right like <laughs> but, but so everyone looks to the kid for some degree of existential fulfillment, but this is seems that's a lot of existential fulfillment to put on you. Did you did you have a sense of that like growing up? Ah, this is really interesting because um, for another reason, I another like um, interview, I was doing some sifting through family uh, home videos and stuff like that, like yesterday, and um, it was very off putting in a lot of ways. The extent to which my mom was like kind of obsessed with me. <laughs> um, I think like as a child, and I, I, I wondered about this after watching those videos, like, I mean, I remember just being obsessed with her. And um, I think that's actually kind of common for child children and their parents at a young age. But then it's like the problem is some point someone's going to individuate. And so like, what happens? How does the parent who's attached so much worth to this child cope when the child inevitably individuates? And that was a really hard time for my mom and I I think it was like, muddied by the fact that she and my dad were getting divorced. Um, but that like, process of individuation was um, just wrenching. So yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of pressure. I think um I think it was. I think, though, like to my mother's credit, I will say that she spent a ton of time in therapy. She spent a ton of time, especially when she was sick, like assembling other people around her, like friends and just disparate support systems um, so that it didn't have to all fall on me. And that was a big sort of saving grace of our, our later relationship, especially when I was caretaking her. Um, 
just the extent to which she didn't ever ask me to take on anything at all. It was always my choice. And that, yeah, that you was like this really powerful story where you're thinking about going to Cal Arts or not. And her and her friend Judy, right? Yeah. Say to you, you're not going to stay. You're going to go. And yeah. it really send you off and free you to go. Yeah, they were. I remember the moment very clearly. They were just like, nope, you're going. Like, you're definitely not making the wrong decision here and staying here to take care of your mom. Like, you need to go live your life. Um, and I did. And it was the best, one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah. You, in the book, you have this interesting reflection on your mom and money and this dependence and freedom, the push pull. You know, it's, I think of what Aristotle said something like it, it, philosophy requires leisure, right? And, and, and you, you talk about like how she basically didn't have, you know, most artists you say have the freedom, um, unlike most artists, most artists never have the freedom to make her art outside the economic hardship of the artist's life. She could be a nonconformist and keep her house, her studio, her picket fence. She could afford to have me and pay for my daycare so that she could work but could she truly be a feminist should could she truly resist the curse of patriarchy when she depended on a fortune built by patriarchal ideals she felt guilty for this as if she cheated i mean that is that's an interesting existential dilemma she's she's got i mean how much of that was her how much of that is you sort of telling her story and and do you still I, does that color how you view feminism, independence, you know, autonomy today, like your relationship with resources and, and creativity? Um, that's a great question. I, I think a large part of that is like my observation of her in that moment. Um, she had trouble in this regard, like seeing outside of herself in a lot of ways. Like I say later, I think in that chapter somewhere, um, that she was like a compulsive gifter of her own art. Like she was always giving it away. And so like she, I think she was like doing it in some ways to atone for the fact that she had the privilege to make it in the first place. And like, for me, I mean, having watched that cycle over and over and over again, um, I feel fairly confident that I'm not shackled to the same like self-punishing behaviors, I guess. Like I, I feel like if one is lucky enough to have a certain degree of privilege and the freedom that that privilege uh, creates, like uh, it would be a shame not to use it, I guess, which is not to say that she didn't use it, but she was just constantly self-doubting. Like, um, I don't know, like I recently went to some galleries in Chelsea and I was walking around being like, ah, oh, my mom's work was like, technically it was this good. You know, it was, she was so good, but she was just constantly taking classes instead of teaching them or like diminishing herself in some ways as if she was punishing herself for her own, for her own freedom, which seems like a really anti-feminist thing to do. But I think, you know, it's being a feminist is, a complicated proposition a lot of times when emotions get in the way. Yeah, and she and her generation probably cleared some underbrush that it's easier to reflect on this stuff, right, for later generation because they're, they're they're trying to sort of think about the water they're swimming in. Right. I mean, I I try to say in the book that like I have like another privilege which is the privilege to write this book that like it ha was hard won for me by the my feminist foremothers, you know, like I this book wouldn't exist at a different point in time, probably, or it would be a like, I mean, obviously it wouldn't because it traces the history of feminism, but it would be a harder one battle. And even so, um, you know, I, I'm getting so many 
wonderful responses to the book. And yet, like, I'm still privy to certain people who, like, come forward trying to, I guess, prove the point of the book and, like, silence it. So it feels like, you know, oh, it's just as timely as, you know, I knew it would be, I suppose. Haters gonna hate. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> patriarchs are gonna try to silence. Like, <laughs> right. I patriarchs gonna patriarch. Or, 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 uh, you, you. One of the things that you do so with with such skill in the book is you 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 frame like these sort of like these these you have these cinematic pictures of what American culture is like, and like the you know in the thirties, the the fifties, sixties, you know the 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 fifties high point domestic thing where Jello is sort of you know, just part of this, again, the domestic science, everything. So, and in the 60s, the counterculture, oh gosh, what is it? What are we going to do with Jello now? And I, as I'm reading, I was like, when are we going to talk Cosby? When are we going to talk Cosby? And then you bring up Cosby. <laughs> but you, it's great. One of my favorite passages is you're talking about third wave feminism and you say, uh, you know, the, the, the question of Jello and, and d- domesticity comes up. You say third wave society, it all depended on one standpoint. All women's experiences could be inherently feminist. Do what you want, they argued. Wear your heels and lipstick. Watch your porn. Sell your body. Anything you do carries with it the potential for liberation. Even a Jello salad can be radical if made from a sex-positive standpoint. And I'm thinking Jello, sex-positive. Generally, I think most people are thinking wrestling at best. <laughs> I mean, you think that's great. That's such a great line. You're like, all right, my, I could have this radical sex-positive Jello salad. I mean, like, are, are you kind of like giggling when you write that? <laughs> I mean, that, I remember writing that. That was sometimes with those, like, um, those chapters where I talk about Jello, particular, you know, it, it's sort of independent of the larger or the, the family narrative. Like, I had a lot of fun sort of playing with language and, and writing them in the fashion of the Jello advertisements that I was, um, watching a lot of and, and consuming a lot of. Um, but I, I could, I could totally imagine, you know, sex positive Jello wrestling. Like it could happen. It might even be happening in Brooklyn right now. You know, like it, it, it's totally a potential thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, if anything, it's happening in Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're in Omaha, probably tougher to find. But yeah. you know, this is a good thing. It's the city that never sleeps. So, <laughs> it, it's a, one of the things that struck me as, as most powerful about the book is you talk about your own struggle with food and body image and in, in, in eating disorders. And your mom says something to you. I found it's so rare that somebody says the right thing in the midst of real pain, right? Which is why it's almost always better saying that. But she says, it's not your fault, but you do have to help fix it. Yeah. And I, I thought that was such a an invitation rather than an imperative, even though the, technically the, the syntax was imperative, but it was an imperative that had the tone of invitation and, and non-judgment. I mean, and, and, and it's an invitation you, you went on to accept, right? Yeah, I, I think I will say like not to, she was, she was wonderful in that moment. And um, it was kind of a time when I had softened enough to be able to hear her. But prior to that, there were some like desperate ultimatum settings and like uh, accusations and stuff like that. So it, she wasn't perfect. Like it took her time to get to that place where she could be like, you're not, you know, you're not doing this to yourself um, sort of intentionally. It's not a manipulation. It's, it's a cry for help. And like, we need to find you a way to, to help yourself and, and to get you help. Um, but yeah, so that took a while. I, I think that was typically her way 
I'm sorry, I lost track of the, the question a little bit, but that was typically her way, which was like she would flail as anyone would for a while and then come around to find the right thing to say. And she always, she would always seek help to say the right thing or to do the right thing when it came to me and pretty much in all things. So the the tougher moments, those were in the file with Cousin John. <laughs> there just wasn't room for them in this book, you know, like you gotta like, because I, I mean, one of the things that I ran into in her memoir is that it just spanned pages and pages and pages. Like it just doesn't end and uh, it chronicles every moment. And I think like in creating a memoir, as hard as it is when you're trying to parse, you know, interesting from not interesting when it comes to your own life or, or in this case, my mother's life, it's like, it's still a book that needs to be consumable and readable. And so like certain things don't belong, like is certain things aren't necessary to the story that I'm making out of our, our lives, I suppose. Like I had to make a narrative out of it. And for that reason, like certain things like, my mom's negative reactions uh, to like my early eating disorder or something like that. Just I'm saving them for a different project, I suppose. Yeah. And I'd say it, it is incredibly readable. I mean, I found it very, it, it, it you could, I mean, it, you could, it's a very, it's a very serious book, but you could read on the beach. I mean, it's, it, it, it moves in a way that moves the reader along with, with the story in a, in a way that's not arduous on the reader. Oh, great. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, it wasn't always that way, you know, so <laughs> I'm sure it, it took a while to get there. In the, in the background uh, is the story of the Leroy girls. The, it's like around 2011 or so. 2011 and 2012. It started in 2011 and then went into 2012. And they have this strange affliction that is hard to explain, right? Where they, it, 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 I mean, it seems to be a severe form of, of, of some kind of trauma related struggle. And yet their parents don't want to believe that it's that. And, and there's this, and again, they don't appear often in the book, but they are sort of, the, they are sort of a reflection, it seems, of your family in the face of strangers. That, that you know, I even think of the hand seizing up of you and your mom, right? Like there, there are these things that their affliction seems to echo some things of your own family's affliction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in my mom's admission paperwork for the psychiatric hospital she went to, it talks about how she would like seize and then twitch and tick violently. Um, I think for the girls, you know, it's a it's a complicated thing because ultimately their diagnosis was one of conversion disorder and mass psychogenic illness and conversion disorder being the um, conversion of emotional trauma or stress into physical symptoms that the person who's experiencing them feels are um, real, like involuntary and real. Um, and then mass psychogenic illness is the mysterious spread of those symptoms through groups, which, you know, actually happens a lot more often than we know about. Um, and, and, you know, you can be, I say in the book, but it's, it's something that you can understand it through like mirroring symptoms, like yawning. Um, some person, one person yawns, then you yawn and you have no control over the fact that you're yawning. It's like that kind of thing. Um, but that diagnosis was one that, and for good reason, was arrived at after a process of elimination and through like scanning the girls' brains and, and looking very closely at what was going on. Um, but, you know, if that was if one of my daughters, if like I had a daughter that was afflicted in that way, I would want, as the parents in Leroy did, to know that it wasn't, you know, something that had a physical cause before I started delving into the emotional potential. Um, 
So I totally understand why they fought the way they did for a physical diagnosis. Um, I do think that, you know, my mom and I, when it was happening, were very sure, or my mom in particular, she was very sure that, that it was stress related and that it was the stress that we were talking about was the stress of being a girl in a small and insular and patriarchal community such as Leroy, which, you know, I, I was somewhat doubtful of because I hadn't spent a lot of time in Leroy. And I think that a lot of people who live in Leroy do not experience the town that way. But I think it's also really hard for small towns in America to regroup after their own trauma. I mean, the trauma of Leroy is the trauma of the loss of factory work and the loss of jobs and um, socioeconomic hardship. So, you know, it's not as simple as, as just saying that it's anything that they're doing wrong. It's not. It's just the story of America in a lot of ways. And do you only get the kind of reaction if you don't buy into the narrative somehow, or you're rejecting the narrative that, you know, maybe that, that every, I mean, maybe that doesn't create as much stress if you buy into the narrative, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it, whereas if the narrative doesn't fit you, that could be a lot more traumatic if, if you can't fit in with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think it's also really hard for girls at a certain age to, to know where they fit and, and it's, um, and to know how to, process really complicated emotions. I mean, the stories of a lot of these girls and the stories of a lot of kids and people in the world in general, you know, are one that can, ones that contain sort of intolerable emotional complications. And how would we ever know how to process those A, at an early age, but also B, in a society, American culture doesn't really, um, you know, foster or support emotional honesty or or self-knowledge. So, I mean, it's kind of set up to fail. Yeah, there was a piece in the Boston Globe a year and a half ago or so called Why Loneliness is Killing Middle-Aged Men. It was oh, this, I even, even yeah. forgot. It, yeah, there was this, this inability to connect, intimacy, other emotions, that, that's just having really deleterious effects yeah. on their health. Yeah, there was a piece in the New York Times sort of connected to it. I mean, I saw it as connected to it, and I I always go back to it, but it was talking about um, teaching boys to be uh, emotionally honest, I suppose, or, or just emotional in general. And it was talking about how prior to the age of six, little boys are as sensitive on a whole, if not more sensitive than little girls. But after that, we like, we so discourage them from expressing themselves emotionally that they turn off and get sort of turn cold. And then we, you know, wind up with other modes of really destructive expression. Yeah. It doesn't, kids don't, it doesn't take them long to learn the cues. Right. And play the part. Right. You tell uh, the story. I mean, ironically, your mother's last meal, last food, it was Jello. I mean, she's ill, dying. Uh, she had a battle with cancer. Uh, and I mean, she hated this stuff. And this <laughs> is the strange things that you, I mean, and, and you tell it beautifully. I mean, when was the last time you ate Jello? Do you have cravings for it ever? I mean, is it? Um, no, but I had Jello on my book launch party that we threw here um, in New York and made a couple sort of, I, well, I first, I had in mind to make like some elaborate molds from my Joys of Jello cookbook, but that turned out to be really challenging, actually, <laughs> like way harder than I had anticipated. 
So I ended up just making some plain molds. And um, oddly, they went mostly untouched by the party goers. And so at the end of the night, my husband and I ended up just like spooning a bunch into our mouths. Um, <laughs> and then it, it got really just like it was so good at first. It was like midnight. Um, sugar. Sugar. And we were like a little drunk, but also like exhausted. And we hadn't had any food all night because um, we had been busy talking and stuff. So it was like, oh, so good at first. And then after like three bites, it was like gross, really gross. <laughs> so that, that was my last experience. You're content for a while. Yeah, I think I'm good for a long, yeah, for a long while. Well, whether or not you like Jell-O uh, or hate it, this is a great book. I mean, Jell-O Girls, a family history. It, I can't say enough good about it. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me about it. Thank you so much, Scott. This was a, a great conversation. Ah, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Allie for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Jello Girls. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.